people who were seriously ill with a life-defining illness and near the end of their lives weren't being cared for necessarily in the best possible way. And so palliative care is a newer field of medicine that usually consists of a team-based approach to care, which is a nurse, a doctor, a social worker, a case manager, sometimes a chaplain and a pharmacist to be able to come and support and have those kinds of conversations and focuses on quality of life for anybody facing a serious illness and can be used at any time during the course of illness. I made a post on my story today saying, hey, I'm going to have a conversation with the founder of Enwell. And I literally said, I feel like I'm a little nervous talking to a doctor because I feel so unqualified and, un- and incapable. So so bear with me on that. But um, I do want to thank you for joining us on Dead Talks and sharing a little bit about you. And to kind of get into it, if you want to introduce yourself, I mixed in with the mission behind Endwell Project, and we can get into it from there. Thank you, David, so much for having me. I'm a really big fan of yours, so I'm nervous to be <laughs> on on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. I'm a physician by training. I'm an internist, and I still practice. Uh, I'm the founder of Endwell, and we're a nonprofit focused on making the end of life a part of life. And we do that through conferences, uh, through our own podcast, through creating media, through creating content um, that really focuses on normalizing conversations about grief, about death and dying, um, about caregiving and, you know, kind of the mental health issues that can come up around all of this stuff. And I'm also the host of Ted's Health Podcast. And... Yeah, I've executive produced a couple of films about end of life that I was lucky enough to have Netflix uh, buy and were nominated for Academy Awards. And just really, I'm always thinking about how can we forward this conversation, um, this mission um, to make the experience of, of serious illness, of death and grief less hard for people. And so you're doing an amazing job of that on this show. And so I'm excited for this conversation. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting conversation, especially the end of, I feel like that's a portion of it that kind of goes undiscussed, let alone the conversation around death and grief, like the, you know, the back end of our life, if you will. So how did this transpire? Like, how did you find yourself, obviously, I know you're, you're a physician, but how did you end up focusing specifically on this? Was it an event in your life or anything of the sort? You know, it was really through my medical training. In med school, I had zero exposure to to palliative care, uh, to to end of life. I think I had one patient that I was was around or taking care of who was dying, and it totally freaked me out. And I always felt like I wanted to be a cardiologist because I wanted to save lives and do cool procedures. And I, uh, it was my first year of residency, of actually being a doctor in San Francisco. And I was at this busy, you know, urban, urban hospital with a crazy busy ICU and found myself taking care of a lot of very, very sick older people who were spending their final moments of life hooked up to tubes and machines and in these ICU bays, you know, surrounded by nurses and doctors that they didn't know and really witnessed a lot of suffering. And it took me a while to figure out that that was what was going on and why I felt so uneasy because I realized they didn't have a say in sort of 
what was going on. It was just by default, they were treated very, very aggressively. And we did invasive things like, you know, procedures to place huge catheters in their neck and intubated them with a, you know, a plastic tube to allow them to, to breathe. And, you know, that's what we do in medicine and we save a lot of lives because of it. But is that what we should do for everyone? And I didn't, hear a lot of people asking those kinds of questions of our patients and their families. Like, is this what you want? Do you understand what this means when we do this? And we certainly weren't talking about it at a high level, you know, as the the doctors and nurses of like, does this make sense? Sure. We can do all these things. We have lots of fancy advanced technology and, and procedures to be able to prolong life. But what is the quality of that life? And is this truly what this person wants, especially if we're near the end? Because as much as we want to be able to, to cure everyone, it's just not possible sometimes. Um, so it started there because I realized that, that doctors were not having these conversations with, with patients and families up, upstream. And I realized we also have a societal stigma, of course, around talking about death and dying. And so got interested, you know, when, once I finished residency, because I had a little more time on my hands, uh, how do we shift culture, both within medicine and then within society at large? And so that's where the idea of Endwell started, you know, the the involvement in these in these two documentaries about end of life and... Yeah, it sort of came out of that experience. So I have a lot of questions. In regards to, I guess, the, the, is it a decision between, when I say hypothetically a patient, you know, maybe it gets to a point where it's, you can't save them. So is it more that discussion of when it comes to the point where you know they're going one way and we should limit their suffering and kind of give them an easier transition? Or does it go both ways if you're still in the middle of saving them, that transition should still be more comfortable? Am I understanding that correctly? Well, I think that it's a bigger conversation and ideally one that happens upstream if possible. Now, certainly there are plenty of people who have acute traumatic accidents for which, you know, they're well one second and the next second, you know, they need uh, aggressive treatment to stay alive. And that's sort of a different conversation. And especially for young, healthy people, of course, I am all about getting, you know, CPR and doing everything possible um, to save someone's life. I think, you know, I'm, I'm more talking about when somebody has a, a chronic illness like cancer or some kind of organ, you know, disease where we, we have a sense for, for maybe months or maybe even years about what's going on. They're maybe being treated, but we don't do a good job of, of talking about prognosis with our patients and being honest, right, about what is going on in the moment and what next month or next year might look like for them. Now, there's always some degree of uncertainty, right? And the more and more we get advanced with even cancer treatment, there's a whole lot more uncertainty because, you know, what, what was stage four pancreatic cancer uh, the prognosis being months. Now we have these incredible treatments that are potentially prolonging life for years. So there's even more confusion around, you know, life expectancy and those kinds of things. But I, but I guess I mean that 
really, we should be sharing this information about what we know, what we don't know with patients and families so they can best decide how they want to spend their time and focus on treatment or a combination of, of, of treatment and other things or forego treatment altogether if that's not what they want. And we don't do that often enough. And so what happens is people often land, up, land in the ICU very, very ill for which it's almost impossible to make a thoughtful decision about how to care for somebody and how to, you know, understand their goals and values when you're faced, you know, with a, a, a moment of a decision that has to be made right then and there. It's really helpful when people have a sense and have talked to their families and other loved ones about how do they want to be cared for in an acute crisis. And... It's not to say that there aren't always shades of gray about what to do, and people certainly change their minds as well, but the, the more comfortable that we are discussing these things as physicians, as patients, as families, the more likely that people are going to get care that's in line with their goals and their values. At least that's what I, that's what I believe. So is it kind of trying to make the whole process mellifluous between, you know, the physician and the client and the family, meaning is it more of a come become more of a conversation as opposed to just you pass the patient off and you just listen to what the doctors say and there's no conversation between the two parties? Is that part of it? That's absolutely part of it. Yeah, that that's a huge part of it. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Getting everybody more comfortable with that conversation. Right. So when you say upstream, is it my understanding that to mean it starts from the top and it's more institutional that where the changes have to happen? Oh, I love that definition. That is not what I meant, but it absolutely needs to be more institutional because, right, I, I think if, if you have a hospital CEO who says, who invests and incentivizes these conversations, right, that's the dream. Um, that does not happen uh, very often, I would say. I, uh, by upstream, I meant timing-wise. Mm, okay. So, you know, weeks or months or years upstream, Got it. Okay. I misunderstood that, but I guess it kind of worked out. So when you're doing all these conversations, you're having these conversations, you're, you know, you're offering education. What have you seen that's moved the needle the most, if, if anything, you know what I mean? Like, what are you seeing that's making the most progress? Are you seeing progress? Are you seeing signs of, you know, accomplishing this mission? Obviously it's a long road and, you know, who knows if it's going to work, it's going to ever get entirety because there's so much space to cover, but what have you noticed that that has moved the needle the most in regards to progress? Oh, such a good question. And we get asked all the time about, you know, what are your metrics for success? How do you know you're making a difference? And in our space, right, as a, as a nonprofit, Endwell, you know, we're not a service-based organization. We're really focused on building a movement, shifting culture. And how the heck do you measure those things? Unless you have millions and millions of dollars to do, you know, large-scale studies and opinion polling and all these things, it's really hard to say we're making a difference. We're in, you know, year five of existence as an organization. And so we come up with what I would call surrogate metrics, which are, you know, we've had several uh, videos that we've we've created um, go viral on social media with with tens of millions of views. So we know this content is landing for people. What they're doing with it, you know, in their own lives, we don't we can't quite measure, um, but we feel like there's a, a there there. Um, we've had you know several 
international conferences for which tens of thousands of people have attended, um, paid money to be there, spent their time with us. So we know that, you know, we're, we're reaching people. And then, you know, on, on the larger scale side of things, you know, I, I was involved with uh, Extremis, which is a short documentary that Netflix bought back in, gosh, 2015, which won the won our category for the Tribeca Film Festival and then was nominated for an Academy Award. And then, you know, Endgame, which BJ Miller, our mutual friend, is, is a part of. Um, Netflix bought that film and it was nominated for an Academy Award. So we know that we're hopefully, if nothing else, reaching people with this critical conversation. And while we don't know how many people have, have viewed those documentaries, we have to assume with the reach of Netflix that uh, it's hopefully many, many millions around the world really with the goal of, of, of shining a light in some of these dark hidden spaces where unless you've either worked in healthcare or been through an experience with a loved one, near the end of their lives, it's hard to even know what happens, you know, what to expect, how to advocate for someone that you love if they are critically ill in an ICU. What is hospice? What is palliative care? Why are these things so, so important to know about and talk about? Because you can't just expect that your doctor is going to bring all this stuff up, unfortunately. Some of the good ones do, but many, many don't. And we often have to be our own advocates for ourselves and the people that we love in these moments when it when it really, really matters. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I think we're making a difference. If you ever come up with, uh, with metrics to be able to, to know, you know, how we're moving the needle in our, in our mutual mission to change this conversation, let me know. It's, it's a tough one. It's, yeah, I mean, there's some things you do. I mean, I guess say the same thing about, you know, the conversations that I'm having. Sometimes some things are, aren't metric-based and it's kind of, I don't want to say, maybe anecdotal, but when you do see big evidence of, like you said, documentaries and big, big establishments like Netflix shining a light on these conversations, that's definitely, in my head, that's enough of a metric to show something's changing and the conversation is becoming, you know, what you've envisioned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I kind of hope that one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been that people of all ages, of all walks of life, have realized that our mortality is never that far away, right? As like kind of dark as that is, it's true, right? We're, we're never promised tomorrow, whether we're 15, 50, or, or 80. And so you know, my hope is that that's not freaked people out, but rather given them a little bit of a wake-up call to see death as what maybe could keep us awake in our own lives and be asking some of these questions about, well, gosh, if time is short, which by the way, it is, right? No matter what, you know, no matter what reality you're living in, time is short. You know, how do I want to be spending this time and what matters most to me, right? I know I've been doing that. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I believe in. And it's like the innate response to talking about something as morbid as death is, oh, no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. But it's, if you just fear, if you just kind of fear and flip it, it's like that conversation is eye opening to the way we live our life. You know, it's not, and I've said this many times on the podcast. I'm not saying, hey, wake up, have a cup of coffee, let's talk about death. But I think it is important to lightly have that kind of surfaced around your brain with the realization that 
this is transient and that we don't have as, as much time as we can. And it can be a motivating factor, not a, not a, a fear-based factor. And maybe a little bit of fear in some ways, and maybe that fear-based can lead to motivation. But, you know, these these conversations around loss is just so, and I've learned it more and more, the more people I talk to, like you, uh, of, of its importance, of impact it can have on the way we live our life. And which is why I've said the conversation of death is a conversation of life, ultimately. Oh my goodness. It absolutely is. And I, I very often quote my friend, Lucy Kalanathy, whose husband wrote that beautiful memoir, When when Breath Becomes Air. It was a Stanford neurosurgeon who died in his 30s of, of lung cancer. And as he was dying, wrote this beautiful book. And she's a dear friend of mine. And, and she says, um, living and dying aren't separate things. We're doing both at the same time. And I just find that reframing, that perspective, just to be so powerful because you're like, holy shit. I mean, that is that is true, right? Uh, every moment we're living, we are actually dying at the same time. Woo! So. I know. <laughs> and that's, it's, it's amazing how just a little tiny shift of perspective. It's like you're like looking at something from this position. You just take two steps to the right. It's like, whoa, I didn't see that side of things. And it just changes everything. And I think that is built around the premise of what we're talking about. It's just perspective. And those perspective shifts can be the most impactful. And I feel like what, what you're doing is shifting the perspective of something that's been done so routine for so long. And I did have a question. Hopefully I don't blow this up the wrong way about how I try to ask it. But is it challenging for the doctors? So like you have doctors that are, you know, going through the motions, doing what they're trained to do and taking care of patients. I feel like there is, like when I saw, you know the movie Patch Adams? Yes. You ever see Patch Adams with Robin Williams? Yes. It might be a might be a terrible comparison, but I feel like he was a doctor that was trying to fulfill, like relate to these patients on a more personal level. And I feel like it was, from my understanding of that movie, it was, it was kind of like, shamed upon for doctors. Like, no, just do your job. You're clinical. You don't have to get personal. You don't have to affect the way their, their end of life is happening. And he saw the other side, but I feel like from an institutional side, it was like frowned upon to have that relationship. I don't know if that compassion is part of your, you know, your mission, but I, I feel like it's part of the, it's a big part of it in regards to having compassion to the way these people are living, not just walk in the room and say, hey, you have six months to live and then walk out. So is that is that a challenging hurdle? Because I feel like the doctors can't, are doing what they came to do. So is that where like another profession steps in and takes over where the doctor just comes in to do what they're trained to do and not get involved with that transition? Mm. Is that, I don't know. Man, it's it, that's a tricky one to answer because I think that most of us go into medicine because we we love people and we love taking care of people and healing them. And Honestly, I think it gets beaten out of us through medical education because the process is so hard and it, you know, we're, we're all kind of overworked, underslept and at least during our training and now certainly with the shortage of, of medical, you know, staff and what's going on in hospitals now, I mean, there's a lot of burnout. Um, people are not you know, connecting with what really drew them to the profession. But to get back to your question, no, I mean, of course, you know, compassion and, and treating our patients like our family and, and like human beings is so critical. And it's certainly, you know, part of what they're teaching now for medical students is, is how to maintain that sense of, of connection uh, with patients but it's hard when they say to you, you have 10 minutes to see this patient, get in and out, let's go. And you know, studies have shown that, that doctors allow their patients to speak 
without interrupting them for a, a median of 11 seconds because we're just so we're in there to get the information and and you know come up with a treatment plan and get out and that is not why any of us went into medicine. That's not what we, you know, want out of the experience. We we do, for the most part. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I do want to connect with patients. Um, it's just we're we're the system was not designed and optimized for those kinds of encounters and experiences. Now I think that is changing because physicians and, and nurses are pushing back on that, as well as, of course, patients and families want different experiences. But I do think that's a huge part of it. And, and we know from studies. So, you know, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association did a survey of physicians. I think this was back in 2016 or 2017. And 70, that's 7-0% of physicians surveyed said that they had never been taught in how to have difficult conversations with patients. So when we're, we're talking about sitting down with somebody and relaying bad news or a difficult prognosis um, or talking about, you know, what are, what are your goals of, of getting treatment here? You know, if only 30% of doctors know how to do that, I think that's a huge failure of the medical system, right? Because if you think about you know, surgeons, right, spend, I don't know, five, seven years learning how to operate, right? It's a highly technical, you know, set of, of, of skills. And we're spending nearly, you know, very little time at all teaching people the, the highly technical skill of having a conversation and sitting down with our patients and making eye contact and, and building the kind of rapport that I think is needed in medicine, we have to do better. And so that's a lot of what we are, are also trying to encourage. Yeah. I feel like that goes back to the, you know, all the way to the top. And you said it comes from the education system, but I mean, I forget where I heard it last, but you kind of just reconfirmed it. What I was kind of leading into in the question, and I did realize, and I feel like you just reaffirmed it was how doctors are so, I mean, they only have so much time and there's so many people that need help. So it's like, they're spreading themselves so thin. It's hard to expect, okay, I'm going to spend more time with this patient, but then you're leaving other people waiting in the other room or waiting in the waiting room. So it's just, they are spread thin, right? So you can only expect so much and it's the stress that it lays upon you. So if it's like, then you add another layer of trying to connect with people on that level when you just said, what, the average amount is 11 seconds where a patient is speaking uninterrupted. So it's, how do you even combat that without having more doctors? Yeah, I think it's really hard. I, I think we absolutely have a massive physician and nursing shortage in this country. So that's that's one huge issue. And it's only gotten worse because of the pandemic. So many people have gone to part-time or, or quit the profession altogether. And the reason why, I believe, is because we have such a systemically flawed healthcare system. So as I mentioned, you know, by design, nothing was set up to be optimized for the best outcomes for patient satisfaction and and physician satisfaction too right it's we're 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 focused on you know billing and and doing procedures and getting people in and out of the operating room and that's that's fine right but the these other pieces of the puzzle which are making sure that our healthcare staff are fulfilled and enjoy coming to work every day and that patients and families feel like they're being well taken care of i mean that's just as important, if not more, than you know, making sure that the business of medicine keeps churning. 
So I, I think that, you know, there are some health systems trying to address this, but it's, it's extremely complicated and we're entrenched in, in very old systems. And so, I mean, I, I think it, it has to change. We're, we're, in, we're literally in a crisis right now. This might be a silly question, but is there anyone is there, is there anyone that exists in a position, like say, where the doctor walks out of the room, where someone else slips in and handles that aspect of, you know, comforting and having more of a discussion, less clinically, about what can be done to end well, if you will? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Well, I will first say, you know, that the that the field of of palliative care emerged, you know, out of necessity, maybe. 10, 15 years ago, because, you know, there, there, these critical conversations, you know, weren't taking place often enough. And people who were seriously ill with a life-defining illness and and near the end of their lives weren't being cared for necessarily uh, in the best possible way. And so palliative care is a a newer field of medicine that usually consists of, well, a team-based approach to care, which is a a nurse, a doctor, a social worker, a case manager, sometimes a chaplain and a pharmacist. So thinking about some of those folks are a little more non-clinical to be able to come and, and support and have those kinds of conversations. But I, you know, I just want to also say that, you know, this is a, a critical field um, and one that, you know, nearly every healthcare institution has a palliative care team, but people are often not referred to palliative care. They often have to ask for it if they want it. And this field of medicine really focuses on the relief of suffering and focuses on quality of life for anybody facing a, uh, a serious illness and can be used at any time during the course of illness. So it's not just about people who are near the end of their lives or embarking on hospice, which is a type of palliative care. This is for anybody, whether you're receiving treatment, you know, curative treatment for cancer, whether you're receiving an, an organ transplant, whatever the case may be, palliative care can be incredibly helpful. And yes, to answer your question, I know I'm being long-winded here, but I think this is important that, you know, that these are people who are expertly trained in having these conversations and, and helping and treating people, treating their, their pain, their suffering, their existential distress or psychosocial issues around um, facing illness. And it's very powerful. Yeah, just I, you mentioned it in the middle was, uh, you know, how people have to ask or get referred or sometimes they don't get referred. So I just wonder how many people are left out of that group that don't get the chance to speak to people in palliative care. And they're just people that are kind of just outside because they weren't shared the opportunity or something like that. Maybe they just don't know much about it. And I don't want to say left out, but didn't choose to go to palliative care because the opportunity wasn't laid upon them. So... I don't know. That was just a thought I probably should have kept in my head. Uh, <laughs> no, so, no, no. Far too many people get left out, and and you're right. And and I think the there's a misconception that you know once you're referred to palliative care, that's you know you you can't have any other treatment, and that's not the case. Palliative care is like a supportive team that wraps around patients and their families, and again is used alongside you know, surgical treatment, medical treatment, other things. It's just, it's, it's in addition to, um, so you're not missing out on anything by receiving, uh, palliative care. Right. So in regards to what you're doing with Enwell, how do, how does it work for 
I don't know, could, could outsiders get involved or is there anything you want to mention in regards to your mission about how people can, you know, get involved, whether it's through learning or any other aspects? Yeah. So, so right now, um, there's, there's many ways, uh, to sort of join the community. So we're, we're very active on social media at Endwell project. So on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I mean, we're on LinkedIn, we're on YouTube. I mean, everywhere like you, and we are going to be coming back to in-person convening. So Los Angeles next winter, we'll be having the plan right now. COVID willing is to have a, an Endwell conference, um, next year. So we're really, really excited after a very long break um, to be able to bring people back in person. We'll also be offering it virtually. And that's a, that's really a convening where people from all professional backgrounds uh, are invited to come and, and join in in this conversation. And, and we're very solutions driven. So the talks that you'll see on stage and the conversations that people can join are really about how we can collectively come together and, and create very human-centered solutions to make the end of life um, a better experience for people. And we've just launched a podcast um, end well is the name. And so we're, we're super excited to bring these conversations to this new medium and, um, learning about podcasting every day, man, it's, uh, it's different than, than other things I've done for sure. And we're embarking on a media impact project with USC, the Norman Lear center, sort of looking at how end of life is portrayed on primetime television because we think that there are a lot of opportunities to do it better, whether we're talking about who is portrayed, the way that people die on TV, the conversations that are had around that storyline could be improved. And the data actually supports that as well, that we need to see more diverse people on TV having not just acute traumatic deaths and not just dying in a hospital and maybe more accurately showing what CPR really is. And the fact that the majority of people don't just bounce back and walk out of the hospital the next day. So we feel like people all, all across America and beyond need to be primed or it'd be helpful to be primed with, with more accurate information. Um, so that's going to be uh, an exciting project going forward. That's super unique. And I mean, it makes sense. So if like, you know, what, what we see on TV or movies, it, it seems like, oh, it's just a movie, but that kind of gets programmed into the culture. So that's a super interesting take on looking something like looking something in the eyes like that. I would have literally never thought about that. So to, real quick about your podcast. What uh, so what kind of conversation? Obviously, it's relating to what you're already discussing. But you just having experts on and kind of having similar conversations that you have on stage and picking their brain and being solutions based. Like, we'll go into your podcast a little bit for, if you don't mind. Yeah, so season one of the podcast is a is a shorter. It's only nine episodes, and really, we what we did was pick the most compelling stories from our in person and virtual convenings, and we paired that audio with conversations between myself and Endwell's executive director Tracy Wheeler to kind of wrap around the discussion and and, and encourage people to think about whatever subject it is, whether it's Esther Perel, who's a New York Times bestselling author and, and psychotherapist, or Elua Arthur, who's a very well-known death doula. Um, we had Rabbi Steve Leader this week talking about psychedelics and end of life. And then we provide a little education and context around that. So season one um, 
is is sort of that style. And we're hoping for a season two where we're doing a little more narrative style, where there are it's more of a, a conversation between us and and an expert paired with with music and uh, a, a little more of that style of of discussion. But we'll see. Very cool. Congratulations. You might have to, uh, I don't want to come off as that guy, but you might have to introduce you to that rabbi about the psychedelics that interests me. Um, but uh, he's, in, he's in your neck of the woods. He's in he? Los Angeles. No, yeah, he's to, great. I'm going to have to reach out to that guy. It's interesting. It's very intriguing to me. I had a, an experience my, myself down that rabbit hole, but we don't have to get into that right now. The important thing that I was thinking about with what you're trying to do and focusing on the, you know, the transition and the end of life for us from people I've spoke to in this episode, I couldn't really relate because I haven't had an experience like this. But when you're, it's not always just the person that's suffering. Obviously, that's a focal point because you don't want them to suffer. You want them to have a smooth transition. But I feel like this is so powerful in the way it affects the people that are going to continue on and continue living. Because the way I feel like seeing someone at the end of life suffering and not having that transition is going to live with the person that's taking care of them or their family the rest of their life. So it's so important beyond just the person that's suffering. Obviously, that is intricate and that's where it stems from but the effect that the the ripple effect that that has to the people that are still remaining is you know it could be super traumatic and it could be a make a big difference into their healing as well oh it's it's huge and we we get people all the time you know sending us emails through our website or on social media just talking about if they had a, a negative or traumatic experience around a loved one's death how that has stayed with them for for years. Um, and so, you know, I think this is important for everyone to be thinking about and, and talking about because we will all face, you know, end of life many times throughout our lives with the people that we love. And then of course for ourselves. And so, uh, you know, from my perspective, this is a conversation that applies to every single human being, right? And so we, we, we can do it so much better um, the, the opportunity is there to make this a better experience. I think we just have to lean into it or at least just open the door to this conversation, just crack it open just a little bit and let it in to reflect on for ourselves. And then hopefully be able to talk about with the people that, that we love. Amen. Well, I, more power to you. I love what you're doing. And, uh, I just want to thank you for your you know, you taking the time to actually hang out and talk with me. And for anyone listening, this is Dr. Trishana, and I'll put all her links in the bottom so you can check her out, her podcast, check out her End Well project as well. So I'll, I'll link that all down. So I don't know where the hell y'all are listening, but the links will be there. So just look for it. And uh, thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate it. If there's yes or no, if there's anything you want to drop a bomb on before we get out of here, I mean, the floor is yours. Oh my gosh. No pressure well, at all. Talk, no pressure at we all. We talked about a whole lot. Um, <laughs> this was such a wonderful conversation, David. And I think I am just, you know, really moved by, you know, the fact that you as somebody, you know, who doesn't work in healthcare and, you know, obviously has had a, a profound personal experience with this is really willing to dig in on this hard stuff. I think I encourage more people to do the same because it really does make a difference for people. I appreciate that. And as we mentioned off the mic, we need more, where the, where are the men at? I know we have a lot of women listening to this, but guys, we need some guys to open up a little bit. So for the ladies that are listening, if you got some men in your life, just share the links to our podcast so we can uh, open up men a little bit. We all know we can't talk as well as you. So we need to, we need to get the guys out of here. Amen to that. <laughs> all right, guys, another episode of Dead Talks. I appreciate you guys tuning in, subscribe, like, all that crap, whatever. Love you guys. Bye. <laughs>